This week's episode of Fright Day is brought to you by Spring Heel Jack Coffee. You need great coffee. Jack delivers. Visit springheeljack.coffee. All right. Uh. <laughs> I was leaning back. Yeah, it still just bugged me for some reason. Oh, God. Close up pictures of Elron Hubbard's mouth. It's Real distressing. He's so gross. It's like he has chew in his bottom teeth and he's just refusing to clean it out. I think it's the purple ooze. Oh, right. That comes out. But he wasn't in 9-11. Yeah, you're right. Most ridiculous string of words. is Fright Day. I'm your host, Byron. When a math... Whoa. Whoa. Don't haunt my voice. Come (laughs) on now. When a massive creature threatens beachgoers' fun and existence, who better to come to the rescue than the guy from Crank? High voltage. Beachgoers, beware. We're reviewing the big fucking shark movie we've been talking about since episode 30. That's like 135, 140 episodes? It's been a while. John... Wow. Turtle Tobs the Meg. And Kelly spent the week in a room with blocked out windows, red yarn, thumbtacks, cigarettes, and Dianetics. I mean, the cigarettes were there. I don't smoke them. It's the Scientology string board. As six degrees of Scientology continues in this week's edition of Kelly's Cryptids and Conspiracies, I'm joined tonight by Kelly. You sure are. And Sam. Hey, guys. Recording a bit early this week. Yeah. Oh, why is that? Oh, I'm. Oh, no. I was excited, and then I had to admit that I'm uh, probably right now in Buffalo, New York, watching Robert Zombie and his buddy Marilyn Manson to take the stage as the twins of, what is it, the Twisted Twins tour come back? What are they? I can't even Is ICP playing too, or is it just... Don't, don't, you don't need to do that. I'm sorry. The corpse paint, I think, makes chubby Marilyn look chubbier. I'm not sure the state of his physique. Is Marilyn chubby these days? He's doughy. Smoking too much of the weed, getting too much of the munchies? Needs to up the coke intake and down the weed intake? You're the least cool person that's ever been a person. Can we not promote drug use? I'm not promoting it. You said he needs to up the cocaine. Oh, no, I don't think you should do any drugs, but I'm just saying that his balance seems to be off. I think you should avoid all of them. So as long as you're doing drugs, balance. That are prescribed uh, safely. So Let's just back that up. Don't do drugs unless your doctor says to do drugs. Okay. <laughs> well, thanks for clarifying that. Having a great time in New York State for the week. Other than uh, Robert, there's some weird, wacky things in New York. And I'm going to try to experience as much of them as I can. You're going to go see the Times Square Jumbotron. I am going to stand in front of a large screen. Well, we're going to miss you. And for our listeners, Byron, we miss you already. Oh. They're going to hear me. Are they? they? They don't have to miss me. Oh. Well, okay. Got a weird show today. No, it's a great show today. What you talking about? Well, I guess we don't need to mention our method of reviewing the Meg quite yet. Uh, should we? No. Or, no it's no, a no, surprise? I think it's a surprise. No. Okay. We just pretend like it's totally normal. Show off. So I've been packing my bag, catching up on a little bit of television. Not necessarily horror, but definitely dark. Sharp Objects is incredible. Oh, God. It just seems so sad. It's is it as sad as it seems? Brutally sad. Okay, yeah. See, I can't do it. I, I can't like be sad the right sads. now. The way they edit that show, the sound design, Amy Adams, they asked her if she's going to be returning for a second season, and you know she's the executive producer of the show. Too dark. Too dark? Put her in too dark of a place. She can't come back. She's not She's got to stay that. mentally healthy. Which I respect. I, I mean, respect, too. Good decisions. I wish I could make those decisions. So I'm really going to savor this season. And I also started the second season of The Sinner. What happened exactly? It looks like they were poisoned. There's no reason Julian would do something like this. He's a 13-year-old boy. What did you do to your parents? They died. Makes you wonder, doesn't it? Your own kid killing you? It wasn't supposed to hurt, Julian. It's 
something might happen to them. What kind of parents go on a trip and don't pack a bag for their kids? What were they planning on doing with them? Why did you change your story? She's clearly hiding something. He's so far beyond anything you can understand. You have no idea. A TV show that I talked about a couple weeks back on the USA Network. Yeah, I think, if I remember correctly, we made fun of you and the USA Network. Yeah, Is that I accurate? Mean, it's a hard place to be, Sam, supporting the USA Network. But I got to say, I, I like this show quite a bit. Second season, things have changed, meaning that the first season is a kind of a contained chapter, at least so far. The concept of the sinner in general, with season one, Jessica Biel's character ends up stabbing a man to death on the beach without recollection of why she did it. And in the second season, Julian, although confessing to the murder, isn't quite sure why he did it. So they bring in the, the Bill Pullman character, detective, Harry Ambrose, to help solve it as well. It's kind of an interesting concept because it leaves a lot of room to unwrap the story. You know, if the person who committed the crime doesn't know... Uh, surely I don't. It sounds like those folks should have been drinking spring Jack. All right. <laughs> and it is delicious, and I'm sipping Just on it right kidding. now, of course. But yeah, I love this show. I think it's incredibly interesting. I, the kind of reset of this season is exactly what I needed. I didn't know what they could have done to continue the other story. But that doesn't mean that I don't expect to see Jessica Beale in this season. I'm sure that she'll pop up at some point. I do love nicely contained arc from time to time. Something like True Detective continues on... When is the new one coming out? Well, they're still working but on that's it. like a, an Jesus. anthology. It's a completely that's like totally... different thing. The cool thing about this is we've still got this Bill Pullman character who's coming in to kind of... So wait, are you telling me that there's a bit of a stringboard pattern between the stories? All right, we already talked about the stringboard thing like five minutes ago. I know, I'm just saying, I'm just trying to like, I'm trying to create a theme, some continuity. Well, I mean... Yeah, so like there's a stringboard there's not like a applied. Little, there's not a literal spring, stringboard in this. Stringboards can be metaphorical, Byron. <sighs> You guys been up to anything? I've watched every episode of Leah Remini's yeah, show now. That last no, week. every episode. Now. Okay, so that's enough. It's it is a lot. Yeah, now I'm hooked with Ortega. He, he just has all these great articles, and I just keep reading all the great articles. I'm like, oh, there's so much to read. I got to consume all of this. So that's good. And I've been maintaining the sanity in our in our home. Yep. So you've been knitting this week. No. I just thought that's what all the yarn was for. No, it's never for knitting, but I do have multiple colors of yarn so that oh, I can track gosh. different paths because this be. is pretty complicated. You would have a rainbow string board. Yes, I and love that, rainbows. In this week's edition of Kelly's Cryptids and Conspiracies. Kelly's Cryptids and Conspiracies. Wow, this has been a crazy summer of Scientology, everyone. And in my hunt down the rabbit holes that permeate all of Scientology concepts, I've come across some specks of information that are pretty interesting. And so I've been kind of gathering these specks and just making notes, putting them up on a board. And I'm starting to connect the dots a little bit, guys. Let me just tell you that it turns out Scientology, and in some cases Elrond himself, connects to most concepts in the world of cryptids, conspiracies, paranormal, etc. Okay? Tonight we're going to cover a number of topics along this stringboard journey. One of them is connection between L. Ron Hubbard and Bigfoot. Another is the connection between L. Ron Hubbard and the JFK assassination. Hmm. Another is the connection between L. Ron Hubbard and underground bases in New Mexico. And finally, because I need to warn our listeners, I know I really request that people be sensitive of my triggers, and I know for a fact that this is a trigger for many of our listeners. It's his teeth, isn't it? No. Ugh. Scientology having a fairly significant track record of killing pets. What? Yeah. Huh. Which, they do a lot of horrible things. I think this is one that is crystal clear evil. We're going to get to it. Let's start with Bigfoot, because I love Bigfoot. Yeah. In order to set up the Bigfoot story, we have to give some context for L. Ron Hubbard. So over the course of his life, he did many, many crazy things. But towards the end of his life, he started going down the uh, Howard Hughes path, let's say. He became a bit of a recluse. And in fact, for a while, some people thought that he had died. He was last seen publicly in February of 1980 in this little teeny town called Hemet, very close to one of his high security compounds. Okay, and actually this compound was their movie and recording studio as well. When he suddenly departed, rumors flew. Now people close to the church who have since left 
have argued that he dropped out of sight because he knew he was going to get subpoenaed for a lot of different tax issues and he was trying to avoid these conflicts. There were some allegations that he was skimming money off the church income. Obvi. That was his whole point. In Time magazine, there was even a headline that said, Mystery of the Vanished Ruler. Okay? So now in 1982, one of Hubbard's sons, not the one who killed himself, which is a terribly tragic tale, but another one of his sons filed a probate petition saying that he wanted to take over control of the Scientology empire because he, in these documents, claimed that his father was either completely mentally incompetent or was actually dead. But the Scientology executives were burning through the money. Hubbard submitted an affidavit with his fingerprints through an attorney and said he wanted to be left alone. So that obviously dismissed you know, his son's ability to take over the money. But a lot of this time he spent in the Pacific Northwest and there were two people that he was traveling with. These were the only two people he took with him. It's unclear why these are the people he trusted. I don't know if there was some weird sexual triangle thing going in. Lord knows he had some history with that. But Pat and Ann Broker, B-R-O-E-K-E-R. Okay, Pat had been Hubbard's personal messenger, had gone into hiding with him once before, actually, kind of enjoyed the super spy mode that he got to go in. Mm -hmm. In fact, earned the nickname in the world of Scientology 007. Now, I have to say, if there was any circle where I had earned the nickname 007, I'd be really inclined to stay involved as well. Anne, Pat's wife, had been one of the top aides in Scientology for years, very, very chill, didn't react to Hubbard's horrible temper tantrums, which was obviously a bonus. So the three of them spent several years together kind of on the run. It's funny, I kind of imagined this slightly fluffier, obese, lame version of natural born killers. Sure, or like the Firefly family, but tax evasion is their crime. Right, and they all have well, really bad also, teeth. But also like pedophilia. Okay. And Forced abortions, yeah. mental abuse, Fine. child molestation. It's not fun to visualize. Guys. I'm sorry. Anyhow, they lived in apartments in Newport Beach, suburbs of Los Angeles. In the summer of 1983, they settled down in a little town called Creston. Only 270 people lived there, about 30 miles inland from San Luis Obispo. Very easy for him to hide out here. Nobody really gave a crap about what he was doing, which is great. During this time, his partners, Pat and Ann, went by pseudonyms Mike and Lisa Mitchell. Not sure why. Hubbard became Lisa's father, Jack, who impressed the locals as a chatty old man, charismatic, but sometimes gruff. Oh, 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 you know, you know, old Jack, he's got charisma, but boy, can he be gruff. Yeah. But he speaks the truth and shoots straight. Straight shooter is what he is. Things got too serious. So they bought this weird ranch house. They remodeled it. They bought the house with like 30 different cashier's checks drawn from different California banks. It was this whole IRS weird secret can, can, we, can we pay for this and boy? Okay. In the context of this time in the Pacific Northwest, because after establishing the ranch house, then they kind of went into Washington for a while. They wandered around. They were rather nomadic. In this time, a lot of interesting things happened. However, by far the most interesting to me is a story that Elrond told one night to his partners. Now, Pat recounted this story a few years down the road, and this supposedly happened at Tiger Mountain RV Park in Washington State. Boy, I hope there's Hufflepuff. Pat, I was sitting outside having a cigarette. I suddenly got an urge, an invitation, to walk into the woods. I must have walked for miles and miles. I felt no fatigue, nor did I sweat, even though the afternoon was hot. I was being pulled along, led by some terrific mental force compelling me to walk faster. The invitation was urgent and growing more so. Eventually, I ended up in a large clearing. All the trees had been cut down, forming a perfect circle. In the middle of the circle was a throne of sorts. A crude throne, made by branches woven together. Clear primitive tech. Or just a tree stump. Uh, Sitting on this woodland throne was the hairiest ape man I could imagine. He had massive appendages. His hands could crush the largest Mexican wrestler's ribcage between its thumbs. That is a valuable metric. In the 80s? Yeah. Yeah, it was. <laughs> Come on. It introduced itself to me as Tehiordor, the king of the Bigfoot. We talked for many hours. He told me that the Bigfoot have been the rulers of the Americas for billions of years. They were pleased with my work, though they were surprised that humans could comprehend the truth. Bigfoot had evolved beyond tech. Born CTC. Cleared Theta Clear. Excuse me? That means cleared Theta Clear. Oh. Seems redundant to me, right? right? Yeah. Pat, the Bigfoot King revealed to me exciting new levels. I must devote the rest of my life 
to recording these exciting and troubling new OT levels. Apparently, the upper levels of OT came directly from Bigfoot, guys. Now, if that isn't a memorable pin on your string board, I don't know what is. Mm, yeah. So before we move too far away from Anne and Pat, I found a really great picture of Anne, Pat, and Elron himself at the mixing board of a Scientology band called the Apollo Stars. Oh, I, I wish that there was something cryptid or conspiracy related to that band because it's really fun to talk about. Yeah. Well, maybe we'll just play a song of theirs. Sure. And I maybe, don't know why not. And maybe we'll record an Apollo Stars bonus app at the end of all this for the <laughs> Patreon patrons. Maybe. Sure. Yeah. I or love maybe it. Maybe an album review. I love album. Sam can do an album review. All right. Okay, perfect. Skipping along a little bit, you guys, I'm going to give my trigger warning. We're going to talk about the cat killing incidents, the animal killing incidents in general. Let's get it out of the way because then we can talk about a couple more fun things. But this is serious. You know, this is I take the murder of any living creature pretty seriously and especially beloved pets. They're kind of a fun club until you get to that. Well, Mm. yeah, hard to argue with this one. This story really centers around an L.A. Times writer named Joel Sappel. He and his business partner came out with a story, a front page obituary when Hubbard died that basically told the real biography of Hubbard rather than like the weird made up history that the church had constructed for him. Mm-hmm. He immediately started having threats. He got a call from a, as he quotes, blustery Boston attorney for the cult who shouted, If you want a war, you just got one. And he had already been being abused a bit by the church and its representatives. So he was a little bit concerned that they were apparently planning on turning the heat up. And here's a quote from the story that he wrote for the LA Times after all of this occurred. I'd never heard my wife so upset. The dog's been poisoned, she said into the phone. Her quivering voice was scared and panicked. Soon I would be too. It was late 1985 and I just checked into a San Diego hotel with Bob Welkos, reporter like me at the Los Angeles Times. Bob and I had been sent out of town by our editors in the turbulent wake of a story we'd written about the Church of Scientology. In it, we revealed for the first time the secret teachings of the church founder, L. Ron Hubbard, who traced the origins of mankind's ills to a galactic battle 75 million years ago when an evil tyrant named Xenu reigned supreme. If you want that full story, listen to Friday episode 172. The story made international headlines and the church was angry. The paper thought it would be best if Bob and I disappeared for a few days until things cooled down. So I'd packed a bag and headed south while my wife, Linda, stayed behind with our 13-year-old shepherd mix, Crystal. Now, the loyal dog I'd rescued from a Huntington Beach shelter a year or so after my high school graduation was dying. She's frothing and convulsing, Linda told me from the vet's office. Crystal's illness had come on suddenly, she said, and the vet couldn't pinpoint the cause. All we could do was keep her sedated. Things like this don't just happen, Linda cried. A month or so later, after countless doses of phenobarbital failed to calm Crystal's frightening seizures, I placed her on a gurney one final time and held her as we put her down. Not long after Crystal fell ill, I got another call. This one from Los Angeles Superior Court Judge Ronald Swearinger. I'd never spoken to him, but I was covering a nasty civil trial over which he was presiding that pitted the Church of Scientology against a former church member who'd claimed he'd been relentlessly harassed. Thousands of Scientologists from across the country had converged on downtown Los Angeles to protest the trial and what they perceived as Swearinger's religious bigotry. Now he was reaching out to me. I hear your dog was poisoned, the judge said softly. I was startled. It's highly unusual for judges to contact reporters during a trial, especially when they've already been accused of bias. There was a pause as Swearinger took a breath. My dog was drowned, he said, referring to his collie. We found him dead in our pool. He'd never go near the water on his own. Now, if you want to read a few more of these stories, we're going to leave a link to an article in the show notes of this episode at Friday.com. I don't want to tell more of these stories because they're really disturbing, but I think it's important that everybody knows this is quite possibly one of the most grim pinpoints on the string board of Scientology. I mean, I, I certainly respect and understand our listeners who won't even watch movies where pets die. In fact, um, people have been a little bit concerned because the preview for Meg does show a teeny tiny little dog mm-hmm. paddling above the big giant shark and everybody's a little it's worried that that dog's going to... With Scientology, though, it's it's juvenile and sadistic, cruel, burgeoning sociopath stuff. It's not... Yeah, it's pretty horrific. Fuck those guys in the air. I agree. Moving right along, we're going to go to JFK because everyone knows I love a good JFK connection. Now, if you want the full context on the JFK conspiracy, clearly you need to go back and listen to episodes 105, 6, 7, and 8. Ooh, one of my favorites. Yeah, it was a great series. Byron did a wonderful job of producing. It was a very heavy research period for me, and there's a lot of good stuff in there. But no one can claim to have researched JFK as much as Oliver Stone. And rumor he has it... He researched it so much, his brain fell out. No, it didn't. <laughs> Oliver Stone's a wonderful man, and we're going to have him on the show sometime, so you, you shut your mouth. 
I love Full Metal Jacket. Don't get me wrong. Rumor has it that Oliver Stone was a member of Scientology for a short period while researching the movie JFK. And this connects directly to the fact that Jim Mars, rest in peace, who was one of the most significant JFK researchers in addition to a number of other conspiracies involving aliens. He actually died about a year ago. He was reportedly hired by Scientology in 2016 to promote Battlefield Earth, which was a re-released book of L. Ron Hubbard's that was now being turned into a movie, or I guess had already been turned into a movie by none other than Johnny T. Revolta. If Stone was indeed a member of Scientology when he made JFK, there's absolutely no way he would have been allowed by the church to direct a film based on a book that was not on the Scientology-approved reading list. While I was unable to verify if Crossfire is on their list of approved books, I did find out from a message board run by former Scientologists that another of Jim Mars' books, Rule by Secrecy, is, in fact, on their approved reading list. This was a shock to me. Understand, ladies and gentlemen, that no materials other than those which are written by a member of the church are allowed on their approved reading list. So the question that needs to be answered is, is Jim Mars a Scientologist? A few years ago, one of my fans told a story to me about doing a house cleaning job in Telluride, Colorado at the residence of none other than Scientology's golden boy, Tom Cruise. He noted that throughout the house, he saw nothing but Scientology books everywhere, including children's books from the church. But the big thing that stuck out to him was a copy of none other than Jim Mars' Rule by Secrecy on the bedstand right where Tom Cruise slept. At the time, I didn't really know what to do with this information and really didn't think much of it until finding out that it is indeed on the Scientology-approved reading list. Some might argue that this does not prove beyond a shadow of a doubt Mars is a Scientologist, but consider the following information as well. The CCHR, the Citizens Committee on Human Rights, is a Scientology-based and funded group which specifically deals with issues related to their stance on the use of psychiatric drugs and vaccines. The fact that this group is a fully created entity by the Church of Scientology is not debated. The CCHR is even prominently displayed and listed on Scientology's own website. In 2011, Jim Mars was awarded the Human Rights Award by CCHR, and in 2009 also attended one of these award ceremonies which featured actors such as Ethan Supley, Jenna Elfman, Danny Masterson, and others. The attendees and award winners list reads like a who's who list of Scientologist actors, with Jim Mars just thrown in there randomly. Are we to believe he is the only lone non-Scientologist that has ever been allowed to enter their circle without being a member? I also discovered that he was given an award by Scientology as far back as 1993. Remember folks, Scientology considers anyone who is not one of them to be an SP or suppressive person, and it doesn't appear that they view Mars this way. In the film JFK, Donald Sutherland portrays the mysterious Mr. X in a key scene where he reveals bombshell information to Jim Garrison. Mr. X is based upon L. Fletcher Prouty, a military insider who published books on the JFK conspiracy, including a book-length manuscript, The Role of Intelligence in the Cold War. It appeared as a series in Freedom Magazine, a magazine which is published by none other than the Church of Scientology. Like Jim Mars, Prouty was not officially a Scientologist, but supported them and had this to say about them. Quote, I have traveled far and wide throughout my professional life and see the peoples of Earth as incredibly diverse in character as well as needs. Oftentimes, our efforts to understand and help them have been too narrow. In the many years I have worked within the Church of Scientology, The one thing that impressed me the most and will characterize the church far into future centuries is its ability to deal with humankind as a whole. At the heart of Scientology's activities is the betterment of all people, no matter what creed, what race, what socioeconomic status, to develop themselves spiritually and mentally so that each individual can improve his own life. Scientology's far-reaching goals are designed to tend to each individual uniquely with compassion, concern, and commitment. These rare attributes are essential in these times of trouble and uncertainty, and most assuredly provide the church with a platform for growth and strength in the years to come. Prouty was hired by Scientology in the early 1980s as a consultant and made statements pertaining to L. Ron Hubbard's military records, which according to him, had been sheep-dipped due to Hubbard's involvement in classified activities for the OSS.
Now, in terms of the connection between Jim Mars and Scientology, Jim Mars and his family have always adamantly denied that he was a Scientologist. However, the connection goes back pretty far and pretty deep. A former Scientologist posted on Tony Ortega's site. The underground bunker. Yeah. And shortly after the story broke about Battlefield Earth and Jim Mars, a gentleman named Aaron Smith Levin posted on that website the following story. Oh man, I'm late on this one for today. Jim Mars' books, Rule by Secrecy and Alien Agenda, were mandatory reading for all OSA staff in Scientology around 2002 to 2003. Side note, the top-level Scientologists literally have reading lists, book lists that they have to read. They really aren't allowed to read, in many cases, outside of those book lists. So the fact that these books were on the list is is meaningful. Mm -hmm. Because of this fact, many rank-and-file staff and SO members read them as well, including me. This book was given to me by Bruce Thompson, the then DSA Philly, and also my then stepfather. Bruce now works in OSA's special DC office. Jim's books, Jim Mars that is, match up perfectly with Scientology's alien origin prison planet story about Earth and the human race. The reason for OSA to read the books was to reinforce the idea that the whole track alien agenda is the real enemy we're up against on this planet. Believing this fact is what keeps some OSA staff and ethics officers, etc., from getting bogged down into the details of complaints from people who are publicly speaking out against Scientology. That's got to be exhausting. God, yeah. The pressures of being part of such a... a Hated group. Yeah, negatively received Mm -hmm. religion. Which they consider bigotry, right? I mean, that's typical cult behavior is it gives those in power within the cult that much more of a hold when the lay people believe that... The entire world is out to get them in the only place they can be safe and have a voice is through the church. Right. So maybe we should be more tolerant? Or we need to infiltrate, get somebody at the very high levels of Scientology that just convinces everyone to go heaven's gate. I don't want any... We've already talked about the fact we're not going to belittle or wish harm upon Scientology average parishioners because they are victims. Do you understand? The children are victims, I agree. No matter how true a specific series of complaints may be, the OSA ethics staff can brush it off as just another attack from a pawn in the alien agenda. They think if their complaint was really what they were upset about, they'd be handling it internally, not attacking Scientology. They're only pretending to be upset about these things. The real intent is to destroy Scientology. I've said it before. If someone believes in the state of full OT and believes Scientology's prison planet story, there is nothing they won't do and nothing that cannot be justified in the name of protecting Scientology. Jim Mars' books actually reinforce this belief for so many staff SO members. If Jim is promoting Battlefield Earth, it's probably because L. Ron Hubbard's fiction matches up quite nicely with what Jim believes to be actually true. And Jim probably knows L. Ron Hubbard thought it was true as well. So there's a kinship of sorts. I don't believe, however, that Jim has any actual involvement with Scientology. I could be wrong, though. And that does line up with kind of factual evidence. I don't know. This is this is a tough one for me because a lot of Jim Mars' theories I have enjoyed. Mm-hmm. I think that he was a pretty good researcher. He certainly went off the deep end at times, but not as far as, say, Richard Hoagland. Now, this is not where the connection to JFK ends. By the summer of 1962, Hubbard was feeling confident enough about Scientology's status to urgently request a meeting with President Kennedy to discuss, quote, his study known as Scientology, which he feels vital in the space race. Okay, so this is according to a White House memo on file in the John F. Kennedy Library. All right, so this is a legit thing. Such an office as yours receives a flood of letters from fakes, crackpots, and would-be wonder workers. I love his vocabulary, wonder workers. This is not such a letter. Hubbard wrote to Kennedy, he offered to counsel U.S. astronauts for $25 an hour, saying he could increase their IQs and stamina. Now, I wonder if this is going to be a part of the new Ryan Gosling biopic. No, because it didn't happen. He tried, though. Hubbard did not get the warm welcome he had hoped from Kennedy. I tried to send a letter to Charles Manson. Apparently, Kennedy's people thought that Hubbard might pose a security threat to the president. Good. So a White House aide wrote a January 1963 memo saying, Final disposition respectfully referred to the protective research station of the U.S. Secret Service. It makes sense. (laughs) Now, Hubbard became even more paranoid. He felt that it was a direct slight and a direct response to his letter. Oh, he was. When shortly thereafter, Kennedy raided, well, not Kennedy, the Food and Drug Administration, raided the Church of Scientology in Washington, D.C., seizing all its e-meters, you know, their weird lie detector tests. They're, they're nothing they were making, detectors. Right, and they were making oh. false claims about them, which would, you know, if they say that they're helping a health problem and they aren't, it's within the FDA's jurisdiction to confiscate them. Some conspiracy theorists take this even a step further and say Hubbard was so pissed off that he didn't get a response and that, in fact, he thought 
the response he received was this FDA raid hmm. because he was rather egomaniacal, right? He would assume that those two things would be connected when as much as I love a good string board, I do not think there's a string that connects those two events other than L. Ron Hubbard's crazy fat lips. Some people think that he actually then played a role in JFK's assassination. All right, you've heard us talk about coffee in general and about Springy Hill Jack specifically on the show before, but now we can finally introduce this artisan roaster as a show sponsor. It took months of harassment and coercion, but Spring Hill Jack finally either lost the will to resist or just lost their minds and jumped aboard the caffeine-powered nightmare juggernaut that is Friday. Why did we stalk them like Michael Myers after Lori Strode? It's not just because we operate exclusively on coffee. It's because Spring Hill Jack offers a menu of what we consider the best coffees we've ever tasted, combined with the ethics of a small, family-run business and the black magic that manifests when you have a genuine mad food scientist feeding the roaster. It's true. Spring Hill Jack offers single-source craft coffee at an affordable price. Their coffee starts at $10 a pound, and curated blends are all $12 a pound, which is insane, and we told them that. So you can enjoy the absolute finest coffees on pretty much any budget. Spring Hill Jack batch roasts these magic beans, and would love to work with you to craft a custom roast that fits your palate like a... Like a palette glove. I don't know. Fright Day favorite roasts include Black Phillip, Reanimator, The Hessian, and Experiment Number 5, which is my nameless favorite. But you really can't go wrong with any of them. Does summer got you down? Is it too hot to brew a pot? How about a smooth, mild, cold brew from specially selected single origin roasts? Those handsome devils at Spring Hill Jack drink it all day and would love to ship a kit or a jug of this cool treat to your shack. Fright Day started off as fans of Spring Hill Jack Coffee and Cold Brew, became friends, and now we're partners. We buy it, drink it, and love it, and you will too. Check them out at Springhealed, that's H-E-E-L-D, jack.coffee. Tell them Fright Day threatened you, I mean, sent you. Springhealdjack.coffee. Now, at this point in time... Scientology had quite a bit of power. They were running um, disinformation campaigns within the government. Operation Snow White, which we aren't going to go into tonight, but we may at some point in the future. It isn't far-fetched to say that he may have offered some support in that direction, though I don't have any hard evidence other than some interesting theories. Regardless, I'm not jumping off of the wagon that I think it was the CIA and the Mafia. I'm just saying Hubbard maybe like threw a pinky in the ring or something like that. No one in the mob would ever do anything with L. Ron Hubbard. No. I don't know. He was really good at stealing people's money. He's just a loser. Yeah, yeah. but he's a loser who's good at stealing people's money. Yeah, but the, the mob is... I mean, I they're kind of cool. What I have learned from mob movies and mob television shows such as The Sopranos is that they're very cagey and you're not going to get one over on them or you're going to end up wearing... Concrete overshoes. I was going to say cement slippers. I love cement slippers. I'm glad I didn't try to say it at the same time as you. All right, guys. We're moving to the last point on the pin board for the evening. We're going to talk a little bit about the Church of Spiritual Technology. So this is a 501c3 that was created in 1982, and it actually owns all the copyrights of L. Ron Hubbard's material. It does business in many government uh, documents as the L. Ron Hubbard Library. And you spoke briefly about this with Tony Ortega, right? I did. And this is one of the more interesting things that I have found. They have a number of complexes registered under this name. The business structure and tax structure of Scientology is very, very complex, which I think is one of the reasons that they've been able to survive for so long and remain so profitable. This specific corner has a very interesting charge. According to many former Scientologists, the mission of this group is specifically to preserve the teachings for all posterity of L. Ron Hubbard. Again, a great interview on Tony Ortega's site with a former CST employee named Dylan Gill. He explained some of the features of some of these locations where there are vaults. Under the name of CST, there are a number of locations that actually have vaults to contain L. Ron Hubbard's writings. Oftentimes, they are etched in stainless steel, held in airtight containers with inert gases, and meant to be preserved for literally thousands and thousands of years. 
And here's the crazy part. I haven't verified this, but I th- I've read a couple places that there is a Guinness World Record held by L. Ron Hubbard for the largest number of pages ever published by a single person. Oh, I was going to say thickest book. Well, it could be thickest <laughs> book too. A lot of his writing was just, even if you are a Scientologist, a lot of it had nothing to do with Scientology. He wrote sure. all these crappy Westerns and crappy sci-fi books. And so, crappy Scientology, Scientology books. books. <laughs> right, right, right. Absolutely. A helpful hint here, just something to remember generally, but particularly pertaining to L. Ron Hubbard's works of fiction don't throw a book just hold directly onto a fire you want to tear apart the individual pages or or crumple them and pry it open and separate the pages so you can get some air in there so yeah he's talking about burning the books burning the books okay this is where it came up with tony ortega one of the locations that cst operates out of is in funny haha twin peaks california and this is the place where supposedly shelly miscavige david miscavige's wife is being held either she's dead well, we don't, don't think she's know. dead. Tony I doesn't know. think she's dead, and Tony knows everything. I bet she wishes she was. She probably does. But this is a 22,000 square foot complex. Originals are kept at this location, and then the copies are made for the other vault locations. These other vault locations, there are a few more in California. There's supposed to be one in Wyoming. But the one that I want to discuss tonight is in New Mexico, the area around a place called Trementina, New Mexico. So it's referred to as the Trementina base. For those of you who don't know, Trementina means turpentine in Spanish. So not sure what the implication there is, although I do think that the title of the area was there before Scientology came. My guess is that they probably refined turpentine there. Okay, stop stop being smart. Anyhow, here's a quick explanation of the base in New Mexico. And this is from Tony Ortega's site in an interview they did with a former CST employee named Dylan Gill. He said that the various features of the place are for a number of different purposes. There's the vault itself, which is dug into the side of a rocky mesa where Hubbard's words are etched on stainless steel plates kept in titanium containers filled with inert gases and built to last thousands of years, even through a nuclear blast. The entrance to the vault is camouflaged behind a three-story building that Dylan referred to as the ventilation house. There's another larger dwelling on the property, but there are hardly ever more than just a couple of people at that site. And the parcel also contains two things that are visible from the sky. Number one is a mile-long airstrip. Number two is the CST logo, which is two interlocking circles that are carved into the desert. Kind of like a Scientology poor man's Nazca lines, I guess. Now, there is also a building, the larger building, called the LRH House. Apparently, the CST employees are expected to believe that the logo carved into the ground, these two interlocking circles, mm-hmm. would guide the returning Thetan spirit of L. Ron Hubbard to the LRH house where he could then live and plot his restoration to Scientology's leadership. All right. And, and this has got to be seen. This is bizarre. I'm looking yeah. at an aerial photo of this base, the symbol. Right. So here's a funny thing about the symbol. If you guys Google the logo for cool cigarettes. Okay. Remarkably similar. And it is, in fact, true that L. Ron Hubbard's favorite cigarettes were cool brand cigarettes. And in all of these houses that L. Ron... I never smoked a day in his life. He smoked three packs a day, actually. Oh, look at Three his packs teeth, a day. Though. Yeah. Apparently, these LRH houses are not unique to the Trementina base. The LRH houses exist in many other Scientology locations. And in all of those locations, apparently, keeping packs of cool cigarettes on hand for LRH's return is commonplace. That's insane. Speaking of insane, Scientologists believe that Hubbard did not actually die of a stroke in 1986 at the age of 74. He became Joe Camel. No, 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 no. (laughs) Camel is is a direct competitor. No, he doesn't like Camel. The marble man? They didn't believe that he died of a stroke, but rather that he voluntarily discarded his body so he could continue his spiritual research outside of its confines. Kind of like Applewhite and Heaven's Gate. A little bit. So there you have it, you guys. Underground bunker, crazy vault. Who knows? Maybe it connects to Dulce and they've actually got like some reptilians doing work down there for him. I don't really know. But the FBI did investigate at one point for much more boring reasons that aren't even worth going into. But they did conduct a raid on the Trementina base. In the show notes of this episode, we'll have some really cool pictures. There aren't many pictures close up of the location because it's pretty much in the middle of nowhere and yeah. safeguarded. It's very remote. There have been a couple flybys, though, where some journalists have been able to capture some images, and those images are kind of cool. The Trementina base has been described by one journalist as an alien space cathedral, mm. and the landing strip doesn't help with avoiding that description because it does look very much like a landing strip out of, say, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Never seen it. One of these days. One of these days. Yeah, so anybody close to Trementina, we'd love to hear about it. Anybody close to one of the other CST bases, love to hear about that. Anyone who talked to L. Ron Hubbard about Sasquatch, 
We'd love to hear about that. Anyone who knows more about Scientology's connections to the JFK assassination, really throw any of your Scientology knowledge at us. We're getting quite a base of information here gathered, guys. Right in time for us to go back to normal scary things to talk about. Okay, you don't think this is scary? Not fun scary. The Bigfoot thing is kind of fun, guys. All right. Okay. Well, thank you so much for that report, Kelly. You're so welcome. Is there only one more episode in... 27 more episodes. No, 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 no. If you aren't scared of Scientology, Byron, maybe you're scared of things that are so big that they can't even be called giant sharks. Actually terrified of those kinds of things. Okay, good. Thanks for bringing it up. Good. Let's talk about it and review The Meg. Hope you're enjoying your visit here this evening. Now, on with the show. The Meg is a horror film that we have not seen, directed by John Turtletob. I love that that makes you smile. It's a funny name, and it's weird that we're doing this. Sam, tell me a little bit about this movie, and then we'll explain a little bit further. A massive creature attacks a deep-sea submersible, leaving it disabled and trapping the crew at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. With time running out, rescue diver Jonas Taylor must save the crew and the ocean itself from an unimaginable threat, a 75-foot-long prehistoric shark known as the Megalodon. The most feared predator in history is no longer history. It's one of the taglines. If you see her coming... It's all you'll have time to say. Opening wide, I like August 10th. <laughs> opening wide, that's pretty funny. Good. Uh, chomp on this, please to eat you. They went to hell to build the world's largest aquarium. Now they're going even further to stock it. They're going to need a bigger boat, much bigger. That can't be like a real tagline, right? I can't imagine. Uh, we haven't seen this movie yet. So... But we're going to tell you a little bit about it and why we did and didn't like <laughs> oh, it. Not exactly. Since I'm currently in New York City... We I thought you were in Buffalo. One or the other. I'm going to both. All right. I thought we'd talk a little bit about the movie now, and then we're going to do something we haven't done yet. Something that Sam's done, I guess. We're going to each do individual thoughts after seeing the movie on voice notes, and I'm going to play them at the end of this segment here. We are going to get a review. We're just not going to get to yell at each other about our thoughts. It's a little different. Can I yell at you in advance? Absolutely not. I cannot believe you think that. Oh, my gosh. Well, I'm going to actually record making fun of Kelly into my review. Cool. That's good to Maybe do. what I'll do is when Sam and I go to see it, I'll just set our phone between us and have it on record the whole time, just audio, so that people can hear what it's like to go to a movie with Sam and I. Did you know Disney bought the rights to this book in the 1990s? Yeah, Disney's smart. Yeah, and Why aren't we it, as smart as Disney people? Changed hands like a bazillion times, I think, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, you've been very excited about this film, Sam. I have been. The book is not, uh, it takes itself a lot more seriously than I think this movie is going to. Is that not um, just because of Jason of, Statham's in it? Well, yeah. But I think they're it smart looks, not to take yeah, it seriously. Yeah, because Jaws is the only serious shark movie. And, you know, they realized that it would be really hard for it to be 100% serious and doing something that has jump scares but is also tongue in cheek. I think is a great formula for a fun summer oh, it's movie. It's great for a summer blockbuster. It's going to get the butts in the seats. It is a PG-13, though. My so butt's going to be in the seat. I, I do a little bit totally hate that with a burning passion. It's kind of a bummer, and I know it's actually the reason that Eli Roth left the project. He was initially going to be yeah, the director. Eli Roth kind of sucks. Well, he's all right sometimes. Knock Knock is a great film. Very much enjoy it. Mm-hmm. And I think you actually might enjoy his next film. It's a little bit of a more young adult haunted house story. If I remember right, I'm not certain. The House with the Clock in Its Walls. Yeah, what he? is that? Uh, oh my God, that's like Sam's favorite book of all time. Is, I it, think, is, is it? Is that him or is that? Greg? That's him. Oh yeah, it's uh, my favorite book series when I was a kid. So it is um, for more younger. Yeah, yeah, readers. yeah. I'd say it's like for eight to ten year olds. Huh. But I mean, he left the project uh, years ago. It was episode thirty in this podcast where we announced that he was going to be directing the movie and probably again made fun of Eli Roth. Sure, probably because it's us. He also was kicked off a of Shark Week the year after that which is kind of a bummer they invested a lot in him and sharks for a brief moment in history uh kelly you know a little bit about this director i love john turtletob john turtletob has made some of the best movies in the history of mankind he's been around for a bit it's really interesting to me though that he they chose him for this blockbuster i mean i don't know that he's had any super big hits in recent memory not in recent memory but three ninjas (gasps) oh 
Three do you ninjas. do Three Ninjas Kick Back also? Uh, I don't think he did the no. Kick Back. Man. Yeah, which is a great film, but he did also do Cool Runnings. National while, Treasure. While You're Sleeping. National Treasure and National Treasure Book of Secrets are two of the most fun conspiracy okay. theory movies ever made. Phenomena? Phenomena. Oh, God, do we have a freaking Scientology connection that I didn't even know? Because that's, that's a Travolta movie. It was also a stupid movie. And the bad. most important thing that he ever did was obviously Cool Runnings. I thought you were going to say Driving Me Crazy. An eccentric East German inventor and defector traveled to Los Angeles to sell a prototype of a revolutionary new car that runs on vegetables. Okay, well, no. Mm. That's got a three. Disney's the kid. Disney's the kid was pretty fun though. So Rush Hour? Who doesn't love Rush Hour? This guy's he's Studio Gold. Yeah. And that's probably why they put him on this project, even though, I mean... Like fun, dumb movies. Yeah. I think this is probably the first thing that would be even close to horror, though, in his book. Yeah, which is pretty fun. And it definitely looks more action-y than horror. Knowing the tone of a typical Turtle Tob movie, I'm very excited for what the Meg might hold. I am as well. I think, I think, well, and we're going to hear about that in just a minute. So let's hear what I thought after seeing it. I am excited about what this movie is going to do to the value of my first printing also words of wisdom to anyone who has access to an amc dine-in theater the crispy brussels sprouts oh, are God. top notch oh, eat those I'm cut you off now eat those while watching and this movie bye what did i think about the meg well first of all john turtletop can obviously do no wrong so it was a very fun movie um jason statham Sam argues is uh, an excellent actor if given the opportunity. I think Statham's just fine. Um, I think that more realistically, he has a pretty narrow range of acting, and if he's given great lines, comes across well, like Lockstock. And if he's not given great lines, they come across pretty cheesy, which was the case with the Meg. However, the omnipresence of cheesy lines certainly meant it was a bit more consistent and it was easier for me to swallow. I hate to be mean, but I think that uh, the character of Suyin, played by Bing Bing Lee, might have been one of the worst acting performances I've seen in the last few years. She's very sweet, very beautiful woman, but oh my gosh, uh, the the woman who or the girl who played her daughter uh, looks like her name was Shuya Sophie Kai. She played Meiying, and she was much better than poor Bing Bing. But that being said. Um, some really fun performances. Rain Wilson was a bit over the top, and I actually love Rain Wilson. He got a little bit annoying, and his character was supposed to be annoying. One of my favorites was actually DJ. Um, Paige Kennedy played him, and I thought that the comic relief he provided was actually the most enjoyable and non-flinch-inducing. Uh, it wasn't, like, cringy and awkward. I need to look up Ruby Rose, who played Jax. I have this theory that she has to be Janice Dickinson's daughter because she looks so much like Janice Dickinson, at least before Janice Dixon- Dickinson had a bunch of surgery. Um, additional side note, Byron's going to be mad that I include this, but Jason Statham has like the most incredible workout routine you've ever heard in your life. Obviously, the guy's always in amazing shape. He has influenced the one thing I always do when I go to the gym. Apparently, he starts his workout with doing a thousand meters on the rowing machine, and now that's what I do, and it makes me feel like maybe someday I'm going to be as strong as Jason Statham and save my family from a 90-foot shark. Um, In case that opportunity doesn't arise, though, it's a whole lot of fun on the rowing machine in the meantime. Yeah, cheesy movie, kind of a weird plot line in terms of how many times the the shark uh, situation turned around. I loved the scene with all of the people in the water that was like a Asian version of Jaws. I thought that was really fascinating. I loved the guy in the big ball that was like rolling across the water and then Meg chomped the big ball. That was very fun. All in all, it was a very enjoyable movie. It was actually the perfect thing to go see on a super hot day, which is exactly what we did. I think that I terrified the friends we went with who are not big horror fans because I laughed at so many different places in the movie that I think they must imagine me as some completely sociopathic, bloodthirsty, crazy person. So they probably just look at me the way I look at Byron. So it was an interesting role reversal for me. I think this movie was great. Don't expect anything revolutionary or any moving acting performances, but for a great escape from summer heat with a whole lot of entertainment, I would definitely recommend you go see The Meg. I would give this movie 6.6 useless polycarbonate shark tanks because the top and bottom are metal and breakable anyway. Live from New York, it's Byron's review of The Meg. First of all, 
I showed up late and missed the entire first sequence of the film, but I don't think it really affected my understanding of the plot uh, or the tension. I guess I just need to note that from the front. Also, I don't like these AMC dine-in theaters. I don't know why the, the waiters and waitresses feel the need to speak at full volume while asking people if they want any popcorn. I, I don't like it. Uh, I don't. But the Meg... It's quite the spectacle. It cost $150 million, so obviously it should be. The VFX were pretty good, and I think that that comes from not being incredibly overreaching in their capabilities. Jason Statham, I like a lot of Jason Statham movies. I think the Crank movies are a blast. I think he, even in that, remember that dumb spy movie with Melissa McCartney? I thought he was actually pretty funny, but... um yeah, so I guess overall, I, I like Jason Statham. I think he's a fine actor. I don't think I like him so much in like a, a talky role like this. Uh, he's a great action star, and I mean, they even comment so self-referentially throughout the film about how he's such a hero and action star, which he is, and I, I think in those moments he succeeds. I just don't think that he should carry a story so much, and that's why I like the the team so much. I love a good team scenario, and it's in these moments where I think the, the cast really shined as much as they could in this. Uh, the Wall, Jax, played by Ruby Rose, uh, DJ, they were all fun. They were all really interesting characters, but separate them out and give them their own moments, and everyone kind of just flounders a bit, but not so much as Lee Bingbing's character, Suin, I don't know how they didn't recast her in the middle of this movie. Very uncomfortable performance. I don't want to be mean, but that was incredibly awkward. Her daughter, however, I, th I think she might be one of the better casted child actors in a, in a very long time. She kind of saved this movie for me, so major props to Sophia Kai. She did an incredible job, and I mean, obviously Rain Wilson, he steals the scene every time he's he's on it, but his line's also bad. I, I guess much like the rest of this script, they just need a little bit more. They're very bare bones, and they need to be a little less obvious. They don't need to assume that the audience is so dumb, which this movie is, so I don't know. I just, I just saw so many things coming from a mile away, and then they told me things that I didn't need to be told. Around the midpoint of the movie, the momentum was completely lost. That's where it, it almost seemed like they were looking for more excuses to get into trouble. There's like major lapses in judgment and logic in this movie. Like a shark is following them at full speed, but then for some reason they can drive these dinghy boats like very slow away from him and he just kind of follows. I don't, I don't know. I didn't really understand what that was all about. Like they're pulling in one of the guys. What was his name? Uh, like the Cliff Curtis character, Mac. They're pulling. No, they were pulling in Jason Statham. Either way, he was like out like a, some sort of like water skiing bait behind a boat, and they pull him in, and they're suddenly celebrating that he's on the boat. But there's still a there's still a megalodon chasing them, that in my opinion should be able to catch a boat. I'm nitpicking at this point, but like those those things kind of took me out of it. I thought that that was very strange, and it it, it was dumb. It's a dumb movie. Tonally, it was exactly what I expected. Uh, it's, it's, just, it's a blockbuster. That's all it is. It's not a smart movie, it's not well written, and it's not particularly well acted, but it hits the beats, and I think it fills the seats because of that. The, the purpose of this movie is pretty obvious. It's just to make, it's to make money, which is fine. You know, that's, it's a business. And, you know, I got a little bit of enjoyment out of it in the meantime. I think I'd just rather watch a, a shark movie with a more creative director with a, a, a unique cast. I'd rather them steer the ship of this. And for that reason, I give The Meg 4.9 people left behind. The continuum of shark movies ends with Jaws at the top and starts with Sharknado at the bottom. And then the Sharknado sequels trail off somewhere down below the bottom. Um, and then right in the middle is Deep Blue Sea. The Meg definitely falls somewhere between Deep Blue Sea and Sharknado, tending towards the Sharknado end of things. Um, 
I was really looking forward to this movie just for something that would occupy my eyes while not occupying my brain. And I think it succeeded admirably in that. I, I don't, um, it reminded me of the, of the, the worst Fast and the Furious movies, which is, I guess, saying something for me because I don't like that franchise. But the same kind of dumb, over-the-top special effects and totally gratuitous Jason Statham with his shirt off, um, which, you know, awesome. But it pretty much stopped at offering a few laughs and some self-aware chuckles. The novel Meg by Steve Alton, I've, I've talked about before on the podcast, Ad Nauseam, was pretty, it was, it was like fun pulp, bloody giant shark mayhem, and it would have been hard to capture on film, I think. Uh, so they opted for this more um, cheesy tongue-in-cheek approach. Uh, I, I think that was deliberate. I hope it was deliberate. There were a lot of puns that made me think it is deliberate, but it, it's a bad movie. It's, it's a, by any metric, it's a terrible movie. Uh, I anyone involved in this should probably be a little bit embarrassed, but maybe embarrassed all the way to the bank because I'm sure it's probably going to do really well at the box office. The plot is, you know, I don't know if anyone else has touched on it because I'm recording this in a bathroom for quiet purposes. And the long thought extinct giant shark is rediscovered and it finds its way to the surface and starts eating people and things. So yeah, that's, that's the plot. But there were some pretty fair special effects. The real standout moments, I thought, were when VFX was used to uh, create more, I guess, atmosphere than the actual uh, in-your-face shark biting the glass bubble right in front of you sort of things. There were a few shots that really stood out in my mind. There's a overhead shot of... They actually used overhead, overhead shots um, to pretty great effect. There's one of the mags swimming underneath a swimmer, like fully submerged beneath a, someone swimming on the surface. And it was really, really cool. It looked great. The shark looked great. There was one other shot that I thought was very cool and also kind of unique. It was the Meg had just taken a big chunk of prey and the camera was following it as it was splashing its tail through the water and the foam <laughs> turned red as it started swimming through the blood that it had, the blood pool it had just created in the water. It was really visually gripping. Other than that, though, it's just a terrible movie. Just, like, nonsense technology, nonsense science, I mean, nonsense biology. Just really silly silliness on the high seas. The worst thing that Rain Wilson has ever been in that I can think of. And he is by far the most legitimate actor that was on the bill for, for the Meg. Yeah, I just, I don't know what else to say. It's just a big, dumb shark movie. I think dumber than most, and the shark was bigger than most. Yeah, I mean, people get eaten. There's a dog, and I'm not going to tell you whether or not the dog gets eaten. Does it get eaten? Does it live? I will say the answer is yes, but to which? I don't know. Go watch the movie. It was fun. I'd see it in the biggest format that you can with also silly 3D glasses on your head. It's a spectacle movie. It's not a good one. That's, I don't know. I would give it 4.8 chum buckets. And that's, again, only for some really cool VFX um, that were used in striking ways rather than silly 3D ways, which there was plenty of. Yeah, anyway, that's uh, my thoughts on the Meg. And this is really weird doing this without Kelly and Byron in the room. So I just have to listen to myself, and it's uncomfortable and unpleasant. And I see what you guys have to do all the time, and it makes me feel so bad. And those are our thoughts on the Meg, which you can see in theaters now. I want to hear what you thought about this movie. Leave a comment below this episode in the show notes at FrightDay.com. You can tweet us at FrightDay, or you can toss us an email, contact at FrightDay.com. Or we could always have a full conversation about this in the Facebook group, which I'm sure we will. Uh, our staff at FrightDay.com has been going shark crazy. In woo, fact, woo. the next episode of the Writer's Room podcast, which of course is a Patreon-exclusive uh, program, is going to be all about shark movies. So that'll be a lot of fun. Our writers are the coolest people, you guys. I mean, they're, they're like kind of better than we are. Don't say it too much and too loudly. Oh, no, don't tell them. Facebook.com slash group slash Fright Day. That's where we're at. We're also on Instagram at Fright Day, posting pictures of us and things. Sometimes us with things. Mm-hmm. If you like the show and want to help us make it even better, you can grab something spooky at shop.frightday.com. Since we're recording this early, I'm not sure if those tie, I, and I 
I feel so embarrassed that I didn't uh, write this into the product description. Tie dye t-shirts. The oh my god! I, saw, I was like, oh no, Byron misspelled. <gasps> oh no, that's good. Yeah, it's a variant of the uh, the old two ghoul for school shirt. Very limited. So if it's still there, you might want to pick up one of those. Also, our suppressive person pins are being made and should arrive sometime in late August and will ship soon after that. Lots of other great things and lots of great things to come at shop.friday.com check it out and if this show isn't enough for you and you want more patreon.com slash fright day that's the best place to get just that we got bonus episodes of captain kelly's cryptids and conspiracies which i think we're probably gonna have to do at least one bonus scientology episode yeah byron serial corner still plugging away you gotta trust me this is it's gonna happening be a, it's gonna be a good one the writer's room chat obviously listen to all the things are smart than us writers have to say cinema autopsy we're going to be doing scream before the end of the summer so that'll be a lot of fun so much stuff there you get episodes early whenever possible and you support us which really does mean a lot it funds this whole operation and it gets us to film festivals during the year like telluride horror show which i'm going to be attending in october and web hosting and microphones kelly's got some habits that we don't really want okay oh come on up but uh, most helpful of all, you can leave a review on iTunes. That's the best way to get us in new ears. Up charts. This person did just that. Kyle Verhovshek? Verhovshek. Verhovshek? Just say Kyle. Kyle, bingeworthy, five stars. This podcast is so good, I sometimes try to forget about it for a few weeks just so I can binge listen. Love you, dudes. Kelly is always right. Yes! By the way. Yes! Very nice, Kyle. Sorry, it's I don't very nice. know how to say your last name. Verhovshek. I'll work on that. Yeah. Thanks a lot for listening, Kyle. We appreciate it. Yes, we do. So earlier in the day, Kelly, you and I sat down and looked at the schedule for August. I don't know if we're going to be able to pack everything in. We've got so many releases. We've got the Ranger, uh, the Nun at the end of the month. Yeah, I think I'm the only one that doesn't think that's going to suck. Well, I do like Corden Hardy. I don't know handful of other things it's gonna be great it's 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 horror season i guess yeah and we're gonna be talking about it these are good problems thanks so much for hanging out kelly where can we find you on the internet you can find me at kelly fright day on twitter or you can email me kelly at fright day.com i'm at sam fright day on twitter email me sam at fright day.com and make sure i'm still kicking at byron mccoy on twitter and instagram byron at fright day.com is my email address and until i return from vacation and until next fright day I'm Byron. I'm Kelly. And I'm Sam. I'm not coming back, am I? It's not looking good, buddy. You've been listening to an Audio Wall original produced by Byron McCoy. Theme music provided by Cemeteries. For more programs like this, visit audiowool.co.